As we think about the Lord's Supper that we just observed once again, I was thinking how it does remind us of the forgiveness that we do have in Christ, that God would not remember our sins anymore. Forgiveness, probably, our extending forgiveness might be some, sometimes kind of difficult. It is not necessarily human nature to want to forgive. And I'm always amazed when I read stories of those who facing terrible circumstances that have happened at the hand of someone else have reached out and forgiven. Several years ago in South Africa, there was a trial of a man, maybe more than one man, but they were white security police officers. One of them was named Vanderbrock. He had been tried and found implicated in some of the, in the murders of a woman's husband and her son some years before. Apparently, he had come into the woman's home, taken her son, shot him at point-blank range, and then set the young man's body on fire while his fellow comrades partied nearby. Several years later, they return to the same house, take away her husband. For many months, she heard nothing of his whereabouts, and then almost two years after her husband's disappearance, Vanderbrock came to get her himself. She vividly recalled the evening going to a place beside a river where she was shown her husband, bound, beaten, and still, but still strong in spirit, lying on a pile of wood. The last words heard from his lips as the officers poured gasoline over his body and set him aflame were, Father, forgive them. Don't know that I could do that. I applaud this man for being able to do so. But now his wife stands in the courtroom and listens to the confessions offered by Mr. Vanderbrock. And a member of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission turns to her and asks, So what do you want? How should justice be done to this man who so brutally has destroyed your family? I'll pause from the story for a moment and say, What would you say? Let him swing? Thinking of the hangman's gallows? I don't know what I would say. It would be very difficult to do what she did. But it challenges us to know the truth of forgiveness. And she calmly stood there and said, I want three things. Very confident in the statement she was making. I want first to be taken to the place where my husband's body was burned so that I can gather up the dust and give his remains a decent burial. Okay, that's so far so good. Not all that hard to imagine, perhaps. But she paused and continued. My husband and son were my only family. I want secondly, therefore, for Mr. Vanderbrock to become my son. I would like him to come twice a month to the ghetto and spend a day with me so that I can pour out on him whatever love I have still remaining in me. That would be tough. And the third thing she said... This is also the wish of my husband, and so I would kindly ask someone to come to my side 
lead me across the courtroom so that I can take Master Vanderbrock into my arms and embrace him and let him know that he's truly forgiven. That would be tough. And apparently it had an impact upon this man as the court assistants came to lead her away to him. He was overwhelmed by what he had just heard and he fainted. As he does, those in the courtroom, the family, friends, and neighbors of all the victims of decades of oppression and, begin to, and injustice begin to sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's a tremendous story. Only one who's been touched in some way by the story of Christ, the story of God's love for us and the great forgiveness that he gives us could possibly do that. Forgiveness is a most basic quality of our walk with God. Without forgiveness, we wouldn't have Christianity as we know it. Without forgiveness, we would all be doomed to hell. We'd be condemned sinners without any hope of any kind. So therefore, that we know this gives us a proper understanding of forgiveness, to put it in perspective, to transform our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. Scripture has been used many times as a tranquilizing agent, creating cultures of obligatory obeisance, quelling any legitimate expressions of anger, disorientation. It becomes permissible and even expected into this type of attitude, this thought, to Gnosticize forgiveness. Splitting the actual fact of forgiveness without currently holding on to the bodily feelings of rage and grief. Those aren't my words, those are the words of a pastor by the name of Rich Villas. But there's something to think about. Because we know the truth of what he stated, that it is a basic quality of Christianity. And without forgiveness of God, we would be condemned to hell, standing before God as sinners, worthy of hell. But God has forgiven us. The word... Forgiveness means literally to dismiss, to release, to leave, or abandon. A judge will oftentimes say, when a case is dismissed, that the charges that has dismissed the charges against the defendant, that person is then forgiven of any wrongdoing. We hear of a person's release from an obligation, such as a loan or debt. That person's debt is forgiven. The word forgiveness also has the meaning to restore someone back to their original condition person who has been forgiven of a sin has been restored to the condition of not having sinned. The sin has been dismissed and released from any penalty. The charge against the sinner has been abandoned. It has been dismissed. But forgiving people can be something that is very hard to do. But Christ commands us to do it. So let's turn to a familiar passage in the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, where Jesus has told us in Matthew 18 that we must forgive. In chapter 18, beginning in verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Now, prior to this, Jesus has taught on, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother, that you might be reconciled. If he doesn't listen to you, Go take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't listen to you and the two or three witnesses, and by that time you're not, it's a matter of dealing with 
is unrepentance. But then he says, the two or three witnesses, then you shall consider telling it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then you treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because God wants that individual to know that God has broken fellowship with them because they broke fellowship with him. And he doesn't want them just being going around day to day thinking that they're fine with God. So we practice it this way so that they will know. But so Peter in that context comes up and says, well, shall I forgive my brother seven times? Thinking the Jewish law required to give him, forgive him three and then I'm done. It's kind of like a football game. If you don't convert on the fourth down, you're done. Well, Peter's going out and said, do I give him seven chances? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations will say seven times 70. It's not a 470 times. Jesus is using numbers to indicate that it's a matter of an unlimited number of times. Luke will say something about that in chapter 7. We'll get to that momentarily as well. But Jesus then teaches a parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children, all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees and imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. This man had an impossible debt, but he was saying, I will take care of it. Just give me some time. Probably never could have done it in his lifetime. But because he pled for forgiveness of the debt, the king decided to do so. Saying in verse 27, Jesus said, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant who went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a hundred days wages. Not all that much. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, I imagine he was feeling a little pressure. Maybe even though the debt had been forgiven, he still felt that he had to do something to the servant, to the master, and start paying, you know, starting a payment plan. To show his good faith, his honesty in doing this. <coughs> Getting this hundred denarii, I might go toward that. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. It's almost like saying, I forgave it all. I wasn't going to have you pay me back. You couldn't do it. I knew it. But you pleaded with me and I had mercy. I listened to you. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, having that last word in it, from your heart isn't just saying you just don't say the words, I forgive you. Now, you have to really mean it. I don't know how you grew up, but if my brother and I or my sisters and I got into something 
My mother would say, you have to tell your brother you're, your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. Then I could go off. Just saying the words. I didn't have to be sorry. I just had to say I was sorry. Or they had to say they were sorry. You know? Didn't mean I was. But I said the words. Jesus teaches us that we have to forgive. There's no limits or conditions. We have to forgive. It's not a seven times. It's not a seven times. It's not 70 times seven. In Genesis chapter 33, Esau and Jacob, well, Abraham, no, Isaac loved uh, Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. There were brother to brother rivalries and fighting and this and that. And we know the story. Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Esau sold it for a bowl of soup. Uh, and it was bad. It was downhill from there. When he got the blessing through fraud, through scheming, he was going to kill his brother. So Jacob leaves. They get back together. And it says in Genesis chapter 33, as they're meeting, it says... He's got Esau's coming with 400 men. He divided the children among Leah, Rachel, the two female servants, the servants with their children in front, Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he's got this whole entourage of his family and he's there too. Esau, it says, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And Esau, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And so they all bowed now before his brother. Esau came in forgiveness. He ran and embraced him. It was like the hostility of the years that had gone over. He had just kind of mellowed out and said, It's better to see my brother than to hold a grudge. Similarly, Joseph's brothers would mistreat him. I wonder if Jacob thought about how he treated his brother Esau when he found out that Joseph was alive. I know he was elated, but when you think about it, you know, Things happen in the family. They say, and what you've done is may come back to haunt you. And it came back to haunt Jacob because his brothers threw him into a pit, sold him to the Midianite slave traders. He became a slave in Egypt. But now he's in a position before Pharaoh and he's saved the Egyptian people from a famine. He saved his family. But Jacob, their father, dies and the brothers are afraid. Uh-oh, dad's not around anymore. What's going to happen to us? Well, in Genesis chapter 50, Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21 tells us, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, you think about that and you think about, you should go back and think in history. Why didn't they realize the reception that he gave them when he revealed himself to them? I mean... That Jacob wasn't there then, but he revealed himself and they hugged and they cried and 
go back and get my dad. Take all this food with you. Let's go get him. Bring him here to Egypt so you guys can live. And this famine's going to be a long time in coming. Well, now that dad's gone, they're afraid that's all that was keeping Joseph from killing them. Uh, so they're gonna, he's going to pay back evil for the evil they did to them. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before you died. I'm thinking, really? Did he really tell you guys to tell Jacob, Joseph this? Anyway, we don't know. It's possible. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers there and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, they had every right to probably be afraid, knowing how they treated him and knowing that he might want vengeance. But Joseph was just glad that the family was still together and that dad was okay and his brothers were okay. Jesus did not say to forgive a person any certain number of times or in a certain short order period. And after so many years, it doesn't matter. He just says, if your brother sins against him, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, forgive him. Saying, I repent, forgive him. Luke chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. Now, keep in mind that 10,000 talents, we go back to that story in Matthew 18, was a lot of money. May have been a government official who the king called in to settle the debt. But it was a lot of money. It helps us to be able to forgive when we know what we've been forgiven of. In England, John Wesley was talking with a man, a general. And the general said to him, I never forgive and I never forget. John Wesley, a noted preacher, said, sir, I hope you never sin. Very apt statement by Wesley. When you reflect on how much God has forgiven you, it makes our own little grudges against others seem kind of small. We have to look at it from the throne of God, seeing that we were sinners, that we were enemies fighting against God. And so in Luke chapter 16, or chapter 7, verses 36 to 41, there was a woman there. A man had invited, a Pharisee had invited Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table, at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what kind, who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she is a sinner. You can't let yourself be touched by a sinner. They're bad people. Their sin may contaminate you just by their touching you, I guess. I mean, it's almost like he was in grade school. You know, and somebody says, oh, that person has cooties. 
you know, they have, you know, don't, you know, you don't want to touch them. And if they happen to touch you, you touch someone else to get rid of them. That's what grade school kids do. That's what this Pharisee was doing. Jesus answering him said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. I imagine he was kind of smug. Okay, I'll listen. Go ahead and say it. I'm ready. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Hmm. Oh, is this a trick question? I mean, I can almost see Simon's answering it in that way. Is this a trick question? Simon answered, the one I suppose who can't, you canceled the larger debt. Obviously. That's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, the guy who owes 500 versus 50, he's got a much bigger liability. You know, here's a truth that you need to keep in mind. And this is what Jesus could have said as well. You know, if I owe you $50, I got a problem. If I owe you, you know, $5,000, you've got a problem. Well, the money lender had two debtors. He had a problem. Neither one of them could pay. He decided to forgive both of them. Simon recognized he's the one who's going to love him more. And you have judged rightly, Jesus said. Turning to the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Where's your following Jewish law and tradition? You're a Pharisee. You should have known better. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. Wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Her sins were forgiven. A servant will soon forget the great debt of which he was forgiven if we don't think we have need of forgiveness. It causes us to be callous and cold-hearted. And that's how this person is going to turn out to the end. The slave in Matthew chapter 18, verses 25 through 27, he wasn't interested in trying to get his debt forgiven. He wanted more time so he could figure out a way to take care of it himself. He just knew that he had an obligation and he was going to pay for it. He didn't want to be indebted to this master any longer. If we don't know what it feels like to be forgiven, we'll not other, let others want to feel that forgiveness either. James Garfield, he was a preacher for a time. His legend tells us that he was ambidextrous. That means he could use both hands with equal dexterity. It's also stated that he could simultaneously, and this is where he had to have a fantastic brain, okay? I don't know if anybody can do this. I've heard of people being able to write with two hands on the same, you know. Said he could write Greek with one hand and Latin with the other. Amazing. In 1880, he was elected as President of the United States. But after six months in office, he was shot in the back with a revolver. He never lost consciousness. At the hospital, the doctor probed the wound with his little finger to seek the bullet. He couldn't find it. He tried a silver tip probe, but couldn't locate the bullet. They take him back to Washington, D.C. Despite of the summer heat, they tried to keep him comfortable. He was growing weak. Teams of doctors tried to locate the bullet, probing the wound over and over in desperation. 
They even asked Alexander Graham Bell, who was working on a device called a telephone, to see if he could come in and find the metal bullet that was in the body of the president. He came, he sought, he too failed. The president hung on through July and through August, but in September, he finally died. Not from the wound, but from the infection. The repeated probing, which the physicians thought would help him, probably what eventually killed him. And that's the way it's going to be with people who dwell too long on their sin and refuse to let it go to God. In Matthew 28, Matthew 18, excuse me, verses 28 through 30, he just simply told him, the servant went out, he found the same servant, you owe me a hundred denarii, I pay it, you know the story. For me to fail, to fail to forgive myself or anyone who's offended me is to imply that I have a standard higher of righteousness than God. Because whatever has hurt me so much that I can't forgive what God has already forgiven. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 18 and 19. If possible, Paul writes, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God will take care of it. One of these days, God is going to right all wrongs. Every wrong that's been done to you, God is going to balance the books. Forgive, so God will forgive you. Paul would go on to say in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Put on, then, as God's chosen holy one, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So what we have to do is look at how God has forgiven me. And my sins are always going to be smaller than someone's, somebody else's. Because, you know, a bunch of reprobates out there, right? Sin is sin. Separates us from God. This man went out looking for a person who owed him. The debt that he had owed this man was... I don't know how to put this in simple terms. It's one... Million two hundred no one billion two hundred fifty thousand two hundred fifty millionth of a percent what he owed the king. He owed the king ten thousand talents. It would have taken him I don't know how many years to pay that out at an average daily wage of a denarii a day. This man only owed him a hundred days. It would have taken this man years, more years than what he would have had to live. The wages. Of a day. Matthew tells us in chapter 6 and verse 12 forgive as your debts have been forgiven. As, no, in the Lord's Prayer, that we might forgive those who have trespassed against us. Forgive us, Father, as we forgive others. In Mark chapter 11, verse 25, wherever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. God is looking and watching each and every one of us. Forgiveness runs deep. 
Genuine forgiveness runs deep. It's not a thin surface patch on a relationship, but an interchange of the heart toward the offender. This woman in South Africa, how could she do it? I'm amazed. But there was something that was in her heart that gave her a change of heart toward the one who had killed her son and her husband. Too often you and I think that we have to extend forgiveness when we've only covered our resentment. A Jewish rabbi named David Nelson tells a story of two brothers who went to their rabbi to settle a long-standing feud. The rabbi got the two to reconcile their differences and shake hands. As they were about to leave, he asked each one of them to make a wish for the other in honor of the Jewish New Year. And the first brother turned to the other and said, I wish you what you wish me. And at that, the second brother threw up his hands and said, See, Rabbi, he's starting again. Somebody didn't want to forgive. He didn't want his brother's best interest at heart. So as we think about this, maybe the ways to truly come to grips with forgiveness is, and the very first time of it, you know, there's kind of like the stages of grief, there's denial. We know that something ugly has happened. We don't admit that it hurts. We just go on with everyday life. Kind of ignore it. Didn't happen. But then as we deal with it, as we process it, we think about it, we become angry. We have to recognize that clearly we are upset and we have to rehearse to ourselves over and over again what the other person did to us. And that's just stewing and simmering and getting more and more anger. And then we bargain. We contemplate the possibility of what that we could forgive, but only if the person comes to us on our terms will we show forgiveness. And then depression. They're not coming. We give up on waiting for them to come and change. Coming to ask us for, their, for our forgiveness. So we lose hope. We blame ourselves maybe for what even happened. The fifth stage, we have acceptance. We accept that something happened. We recognize that it was in the past some time ago. We acknowledge that we've learned from the experience. It's going to differ from each and every one of us. But it reminds us that forgiveness is an act that sometimes, many times, needs to be repeated. And a final thought on forgiveness, because there are many layers to it. There's a call to forgive while not, neglect, while not neglecting the human need to feel. Forgiveness is costly. And if we're going to live with integrity, with balance in our lives, we need to hold on to the various human dynamics at play. And so that's why we as a church must remind ourselves that forgiveness doesn't mean that we forget what someone has done. In fact, I would submit to you that you cannot forgive and forget. Forgiveness is choosing not to hold it against them. God, when it says he does not remember our sins, he's God. He cannot forget. He just chooses not to remember them against us. We must doesn't mean that there aren't going to be consequences for someone else. There will be. I don't know what the consequences were for this Vanderbrock in South Africa. I don't know if he had to serve jail time or if he, this, the courts just said, okay, you're fine. I know on her part, she just let go of it. She gave him forgiveness. He couldn't believe it because he couldn't do that. But now maybe he can. It doesn't mean we're not going to feel the pain of grief. It will mean that there can be a reconciliation 
doesn't mean, though, that there will be. There can be. It's never going to be the same as it was. But things can be, get, be better. Forgiveness does not mean that we excuse someone for what they've done. And forgiveness does not mean that we don't seek justice if it's a legal matter. It is possible to hold on to the miraculous act of forgiveness while practicing profound lament and holding out for justice in our world. It's hard, but by God's grace, we can do it. It can become a reality for us. And so with this closing thought, Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, was reminded one day of a vicious deed that someone had done to her many years before. She acted as if she had never heard of the incident. And her friend said, don't you remember it? And Barton replied, no, I distinctly remember forgetting it. How can you distinctly remember forgetting something that happened? You can't. It just means I dealt with it. I choose not to hold it against you. God knows our sins. But in Christ, he forgives us of our sins. And he's called us to the standard of being perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. So we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We forgive those who have wronged us. 458 is redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That's what enables us to forgive. The blood of Christ changes our perspective on everything. Places into a covenant relationship with God. I don't know where you are today, but if you stand in need of coming to the responding to the invitation of Jesus, please do so while together we stand and while we sing. Yeah.